Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, you guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. Aloha, beaches! Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, joined by my co-host, Drew Garrison. Hey, guy. How do you do today? I'm doing pretty good. Do I still sound like a robot? No, you don't sound like a dying Wally. You're pretty good right now. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna try to get through it. Um, Chris went on vacation last week and made me super jealous because he was hanging out on a beach, and so I was like, "Well, I need to go onto a beach." But of course, when you're when you have that live that beach life, that Wi-Fi life is not as great. So, you know, where there might be some healing properties in the ocean, not on my Wi-Fi connection. I'll I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Um, Maybe you need to throw your though, Wi-Fi but... into the ocean. Oh no! Do we? Are you just like dropping sweet beats on us now? I yeah, I guess I was. Sorry, my uh, my fat hands hit the wrong button. <laughs> oh. Welcome to Good Model Podcast, where we produce awkwardly. Yeah, we're just really really good. So you can tell it's like sometimes uh, uh, we get rusty really quick when we don't record for like two weeks. You know, yeah, that's right. And the wheels the wheels come off. Um, well, that's good. I'm glad I'm glad that you're back. I'm glad that we're here, and I'm glad that we have our guest today because this person is a writer a speaker, an ice enthusiast, and the author of the book that we're going to talk about today, Doctors and Distillers, our guest, Camper English. Camper, thank you for bearing with us during all these technical difficulties and having fun with it. Welcome to the show. For our guest at home, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you were drinking yesterday. Hello. <laughs> uh, yesterday, what was I drinking yesterday? It's all, it seems so long ago. That was Sunday. Today's Monday. The weekend is over. Uh, my name is Camper English. I'm a, a writer. I write nerdy stuff about drinks for the most part. Um, and history was not my general thing, but I wrote a history book, it turns out, um, because I got uh, nerdy about malaria a while back. Yesterday, I was sipping earlier in the day and a little bit of high-strength bourbon um, that I was tasting. You know, a lot of stuff comes in the mail for me to try, and I tried it. And uh, then I continued to enjoy it. <laughs> well, and one of one of the other things that you brought up to us, at least in you know the very official email prep, which does work most of the time, uh, was you tried uh, Super Aswa. Super sour. Super sour. Super sour. No, I love super sour. Okay, what is that? How was it? Uh, Super. So I I bought a bottle about a year ago because I saw it in a store and I never cracked it open because I don't really need it. So super sour is like the isolated acids of citrus uh, bottled up with water and some preservative, basically. So it's not really a replacement for lemon or lime juice, even though it's marketed as such, because it doesn't have the flavor of lemon or lime juice, but it has the acidity of those juices. And it's got a pH of less than two, so it is super sour. And uh, it was interesting to try. Really, if you try it full strength, it blows your mouth out with its sourness. So it's something that I would dilute if I was going to use in a drink. But with the way bartenders are looking at sort of extending citrus juice by acidifying it and then adding water, there's this new 
super juice technique that people are using. It's essentially like if we took a lime and peeled it and added the peels plus the super sour plus some water to the lime juice, then we would have extended lime. And this is one element of that. The super juice method is to use just the isolated acids like citric and malic acid. Um, but this is all bundled up together. So I figured it'd be fun to give that a try on its own. And boy, if that doesn't give you a preview of your book, I don't know what will. Good Lord. Um, well, that's awesome. And, you know, and one of the things that, that we are here today is to talk about this new book. Uh, it's, so again, it's called Doctors and Distillers, The Remarkable Medicinal History of Beer, Wine, Spirits, and Cocktails. Um, so both Chris and I picked this up about a month ago. Um, I, uh, I did the audio version, and that was narrated by Joanna Carpenter who uh, did a great job. So if you guys like audiobooks, this is a really good book to, uh, to do on audio. And then um, probably about 10 minutes in, I was like, wow, there's a lot of big words in here and things I want to highlight. So then I went and bought myself the hard copy as well because I just was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to retain all of this information. And you know, I guess my, my first question for you, Camper, is that when you're going through the history of you know, of spirits and really, you know, most of them do have their origins in medicinal properties. It's like, for me, the most confusing thing is always just the language that's being used. Like, even if it's English, there are words and phrases that were so common, you know, back then that just have zero to no meaning today. And, and I'm just curious, like, how do you navigate that as someone who doesn't consider himself a historian, but just wrote a history book? Well, I had to look up a lot of things and I had to uh, figure out the meaning and context because the the meaning of a lot of words changes over time. And uh, like a more recent example would be uh, the uh, vulgar, the word vulgar. Today, that means, you know, gross. And but the first definition of the cocktail, we know, vulgarly called a bitter sling. Um, uh, vulgar meant common. It didn't mean disgusting. And it just meant popular, you know, of the popular people, popularly called the bittered sling. So that's one example of many, many words that change their, how we use them over time. And I had to, to back into that. The alchemy section is full of words that don't mean what the words are. <laughs> mercury yeah. doesn't yeah. mean mercury as we know it today and, and things like that. So it got really confusing in times and I had to spend a lot more time in certain parts of history just to figure out what the heck was going on. And alchemy was, was the biggest problem for that. Cause I thought I would just look at distillation and I knew the alchemists were using it to make distilled spirits, but it didn't make any sense. And so I had to learn a lot more about the theory of alchemy in order to figure out how in the heck they got to aquavitae at the end of it. It's not because they were trying to make gold. Uh, it was because they were trying to make medicine by extracting the life force out of plants. And then they threw wine in the still and they're like, bam, we've got the ultimate life force. We're going to fix everything with this. It is the best medicine in the world and not even made as a beverage. But in the context of medicine and purification and trying to create uh, every each perfect each thing in its own essence. That's how we got booze, which is um, distilled booze. And that was really unexpected. It took so long to figure it out. But then I was like, Eureka. Yeah. 
Well, and I think there's, you know, and obviously, you know, as you cover through throughout the entire book, just this really in-depth history from all these different cultures and all these different, um, you know, alchemists, doctors, you know, healers that are snake oil salesmen eventually as well. Um, is, was there a catalyst for you? I know you mentioned that you kind of became obsessed with malaria and then that kind of led you down like a, a rabbit hole. Was was that really it? We were kind of like, okay, well, this was actually really interesting figuring out how they used to treat malaria because as time went on and you saw it, and I mean, and you're also like one of the things that the book touches on is that it wasn't just, you know, doctors and things that were influential and in how things were treated. But in the, in the situation of scurvy, you brought up the fact that like, Hey, there was an admiral and I don't remember his name right now, but he's like, he had a method of how he thought this was supposed to be treated. And in fact, his method wasn't right. It was all these different factors, but since he thought it was this one thing, he actually set back scurvy treatment like years. Right. You know? And so there's this boat captain who's now dictating, you know, health, um, is, was there anything else like that, that you're just kind of like, like, Oh, that's really interesting. Let's go down this one and let's go down that. I mean, or how hard was it to really to focus it? Because, you know, this book is so in depth and it's so interesting and it's, and it's a lot of information, but I actually found it, I mean, especially through the audiobook version that it's still very digestible, which I think is a real testament to your writing style is that you took very complex things. And I was like, and I didn't feel like an idiot the whole time, which is quite the accomplishment. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I know I'm rambling now, but yeah, kind of bring it back to, you know, is what are these things that really triggered you to be like, I need to cover this more. I need to write this book. I need to, you know, tell people about this. Well, it was when I was studying the history of malaria and malaria is such an old disease that you get the whole history of medical thought when you study the history of, of malaria, because it goes back to pre-written history. And I think we all know from being in the booze industry, a few fun facts about the medicinal history of cocktail and spirits, like the scurvy is citrus and tonic water cures malaria and things like that. But there wasn't really a through narrative of the history of medicinal thought and how alcohol is always there at every time, every minute of the the, the millennia. In, in medicine, alcohol was there used as medicine or in medicine or the alcohol may have inspired medicinal uh, treatments and thoughts and, and scientific discoveries, as we see in the, the chapter on Pasteur. So I saw sort of the opportunity to, to take not just the history of alcohol, but the history of alcohol combined with the history of medicine and follow their intersection. And that turned out to be far more um, closely com combined than I had guessed in the beginning of this project. I thought I was going to do a fun, fluffy, light exploration of this. But as you have seen, it ended up being pretty detailed. And my style of writing is to be like, hey, here's the point, but here's 30 examples. <laughs> and uh, trying to put in what people actually said about Wormwood rather than just say Wormwood was used for this, for example, and then let you sort of filter and edit the information that you want out of it. And maybe that's a little bit too intense for some people, but uh, that's that's how I like to do it. Like, here's all the information that you need. Take what you want out of that. So that, that was my approach, and it's why there's so much, I think, extra material in there where I'm actually preparing a talk for a, a medical library, and I'm going to take the the book and then reprocess it basically as a charts and an outline. And I'm very excited to do that. I'm like I'm doing it the opposite direction that 
you would normally start with your outline and then and then go uh, in that direction. But I was just writing, and I'd be like, "Oh gosh, I guess I need to know more about um, uh, vaccines and and uh, that history." I'm like, "Oh, there's alcohol there too," and then that goes into the book. <laughs> and uh, a lot of decisions were what to leave out at the end of the day because had I talked about folk medicine a lot, I tried to keep that out. It sneaks in, but. Um, that would have taken the whole book. You could just talk about what everyone's grandma did uh, using, right. you know, right. rubbing whiskey on your gums and this and that. And I really didn't, I wanted it to be medical thought more than folk cures. Yeah. Long, and I think that's, that's the question. <laughs> no, no, that was great. I mean, and, and, and again, I think the, the really fun thing about this, this book is that, you know, there is a lot of information in, one of the things that Chris and I did, and we'll get into this a little bit later, is like, but we wanted to take like, what were our biggest like takeaways or what are things that really stood out to us, right? And so, you know, after doing the audiobook version, I'm going through the hard copy. I'm like, oh yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. But then, you know, bringing up um, the, you know, just different, different testing methods and stuff like the guinea pigs thing that you talk about in the book and how those poor guinea pigs were just pumped full of like the most horrible stuff, you know? So I think, cause that, that one had to do with the wormwood right? Was that was some of the experimentation was to show how damaging it was, right? And the, yeah. this is, again, some of it might be blending together in my head, but, you know, you know, also being like, it's like, oh, wow, like that, you know, the, the phrase of, you know, being a guinea pig, like that hits a little bit different for me now. And now I feel really <laughs> terrible about any time I've used it. So, you know, obviously we want people to go out and buy the book, but, and we'll, we are going to talk, I guess, quote unquote spoilers, but, you know, like they would, you know, to prove points, they would pump these guinea pigs full of these different elements to be like, hey, this is really harmful for you. It's like, yeah, but that's like the equivalent of you drinking X amount, which no human person would ever do. Right. So I was just really I thought that was just really interesting. And, you know, and it made me think of uh, just as you're reading, it, like how barbaric so many things were. Right. And how much experimentation and how sometimes people would get things right. and Sometimes things they would get it wrong or there'd be partials, you know, and stuff like that. And then I just was like, I was like, oh man, I mean, I mean, how are we going to look in a thousand years <laughs> when medical professionals look back on, you know, 2022? Um, was there, was there any story that, that stood out to you that you're kind of like, oh, I really wish I could put this in, but it just doesn't make sense for the book. You know, it's like, there's like a weird meerkat experimentation or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, there, I'm sure there were um, offhand there's so much gross stuff in there already. The history of medicine is disgusting, which makes it kind of fun. And, you know, if you think of it in olden times, these are, this is no, we know that was killed by an enema. Um, then it's a, it seems a little bit better, but uh, the history of, of disease, I was talking to some person at a party once and I don't know how it came up, but uh, her favorite disease, I forget what it was. It may have been Spanish flu, which we no longer call Spanish flu because it's not actually from Spain. But um, I was like, I'm into malaria. And that was in the process of writing the book. And we were like just having party chatter about our favorite disease. Uh, but now after writing it, and I, I think it probably shows like syphilis have become the new favorite disease to study because yeah. Syphilis had a, a history I had no idea. Like Columbus brought syphilis back to Europe, it seems. And uh, the search for the cure ended up making a run on sassafras and sarsaparilla uh, and taking that from the New World back to Europe, thinking that that was going to be a cure, which of course it was not. And 
stuff like that. I'm like, that's so fascinating. Uh, and you, you pick a favorite and follow the, the train along. Well, I think that with the, with the syphilis one, I mean, yeah, you could definitely see how that became a little bit more of the emphasis towards the end of the book, right? Like there was a lot more mention of it. And then also just the fact that now there was other ways of, you know, treating, cause there was some, there was some uh, connections, right. Between people with syphilis, you would then infect them with malaria. Right. And yep. so to raise the, raise the blood temperature. So that would kill the syphilis. And then because malaria was such an older disease, there was treatments for that. So they could like, you know, and obviously it didn't work every time, but it, it did work some of the time. So I could see that. And I think also, as you touched on it throughout the book where, you know, with the syphilis, it was something that it just hits you in so many different ways. And the longer it was in your system, I mean, like the more damaging and the different ways it would affect you. So, so that totally makes sense. Um, Chris, what were, let, let's get into some of our takeaways and talk in other talking points. So what was, what was your first takeaway for, for going through this book? Uh, as being, a, uh, as huge of a camper English fan as I am, uh, I'm going to nerd out here a little bit. Uh, uh, camper, do you have, um, do, do your fans have like a name? Are they like the camper heads or something? Can, can we create something right now? Uh, yeah, you're, you're welcome to. Yeah. Not, not far enough. All right. The, the academics, the academics, academics. I like the camper rights. Uh, uh, I have, become attuned to campers uh humor and this book is completely fraught with uh with campers humor it is like it is through and through and it makes it such a joy to read um but this line more than any probably made me laugh more times it made it really difficult just to get through the chapter because i kept going back to it because it made me laugh uh it's the beginning of the uh armagnac and cognac section and the first sentence reads, Arnold of Villanova, who justified using the term water of life to describe distilled wine's miraculous health-giving properties, died in 1311. And that, uh, uh, just the fact that you're talking about someone who who's discussing uh, living forever, uh, and then uh, finishing that sentence up with how oh, he died. It just made me laugh through and through. Uh, and so this... Uh, this whole book is just is just campers humor throughout, and I I love that. Thanks. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of my like, subtle little jokes, and you know I took a lot out <laughs> um, that, that was in there because I'm like, well, am I being disrespectful um, and uh, trying to not make it sound like I was delighted in the misery of people who died of some diseases. I, so I tried to tone it down from what you'd get in person, but um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's enough left in it. I, I think that uh, uh, people found it. Yeah. There's definitely a couple that, that come across in, in the audiobook as well. We are kind of like, like, I think that was a joke, you know, like it was, it's, it's pretty good. And again, Joanna does a really great job of that. Um, one of the things that I really loved about the book is, you know, in the world getting smaller and smaller, like one of the things that Americans hold on to is our, you know, system of measurement. And so every time you're looking at cocktails and things like that, it's always ounces this, ounces that. Well, you not only do that for because you have cocktails throughout the book that kind of help tell the story of of each of each spirit and stuff like that, and how it ties in medicinally and whatnot. But 
you do the ounces and then you also do the milliliter conversion. And I just want you to, know, I just really appreciate that because I'm such a visual learner. So now that I have this hard copy, I'll be like, oh yeah, two ounces is 60 milliliters. Cool. Now I can make this connection very easily. So that was just one of, one of my takeaways that it's, it's obviously not the emphasis of the book, but it's something I just really appreciated about it. So there's like the little touch was like, oh, this is going to help me learn this and get it to stick. So, um, <laughs> So that yeah, was, and I, that was I mostly one. did it so I wouldn't have to do it later uh, for the UK edition. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, so, yeah, that just resonates even more with me. That's amazing. <laughs> um, it makes, makes me look smarter. Yeah, and I have those those numbers more memorized than I used to. I always want to set on my phone the the weather app. You can have it in Celsius or Fahrenheit. I'm like, why not both? I would love mm-hmm. to put some to memory a little bit better. If yeah. I have that yeah. option. I totally agree. All right. So I'm going to do another one and then we'll go back to Chris. So, uh, yeah, I think one of the best stories in the history of spirits is, is chartreuse. Right. And so you had a really good section on it. Uh, you know, it's impact on the culture, how it's still culturally relevant. Um, the, the different methods and how it's changed over time too. And one of the things that you mentioned in is that, is that the current, you know, production of chartreuse is, uh, well, one thing is just the dating. I thought the dating was fascinating. I did not know that was a thing that you can figure out exactly when that bottle was, um, when it was produced. So again, go buy the book so you can figure out how that is. But the other thing was, you know, the current produced production of it says everything that was in the original recipe is in there again today, except for one thing. And they don't tell you what it is. So Based on all of your research and all the things you did, what do you think that potential element could be that they're kind of like, we got to get this the fuck out of here? Well, I figure it's something that's unhealthy and or illegal since then. And so I have a, you know, cast of suspicious characters and um, it's possible that it could be just grand wormwood and they're using a different wormwood instead. So that's one possibility. Another would be... um, uh, one of the, it's a swamp grass that is used in vermouth, but it's not allowed in the United States specifically, uh, calamus. And, uh, that's a possibility, but, but I'm not sure, uh, if, if that could be it. I thought there was some language. I don't think I put it in the book that was from the chartreuse brand book that said like the, it may have been like the large variation of one plant or something like that, which made me think, oh, that would be grand wormwood rather than mm-hmm. than uh, a different type of wormwood. Um, but I don't know. There are a lot of things that we don't use anymore, like um, uh, sassafras in the United States is not allowed to be put in, in food. And so that was my thought, that it was one of those ingredients. Yeah. Yeah, I just was curious. I was like, I was like, man, that must have like, driven him crazy not to know what it is if you do all this research and kind of like but one's not in it sorry we won't even say what it is like yeah, that's all, ridiculous everything but one um but that <laughs> yeah. what was amazing is the brand book that i used to do that so i had written uh when i submitted a book proposal two chapters that i turned in and one of them was the chartreuse chapter and this was based on the information from the chartreuse website and talking to brand ambassadors and i did a lot of research in it and then after that, the English translation of the Chartreuse brand book comes out. And it was so honest and revealing that I had to completely rewrite the chapter on Chartreuse. All the distillery dates changed by like a 
a year or two, it turns out that green and yellow chartreuse came out around the same time as the elixir. It was all commercialized later after they needed to earn money after the French Revolution. And it was it changed a lot about my understanding of it. And I'm grateful that they chose not to just go with, this is the exact same recipe that has never changed throughout all of time that you hear over and over again, where you're like, well, I know things are not allowed in the same legal quantity as they used to be. So that's definitely not true for a lot of brands. Right. Um, right. So it was, it was refreshing to hear uh, Chartreuse being really forthcoming. Yeah. And so you're, you're doing some book clubs with this stuff and discussing it. I think it's really important because, again, as I was trying to figure out these different um, like talking points, one of the ones that you just reminded me of in terms of things changing was there was a book that came out that people largely take as fact that ended up being very damaging to the rest of the category. And I understand that I'm not giving you the details of it, but it was written, I want to say it was like in the early 80s. And the guy ended up making up a lot of the information that he was using for his research. This is, and again, it's going to hit me later. Okay, I know, you're not I know your what you're talking about now. Book. Yeah, I got it. Okay, um, so what, the vodka what was that? <laughs> the vodka book. Which one? Oh, yes, Vod- vodka. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes, it was, it was about the origins of vodka and then how like everyone believes it's one thing, but it's actually another. So, um, so I don't want to give that away. I just want people to know, go buy this book join his book clubs because again, like as you start to talk about this, I was like, Oh yeah, there's that thing too. So um, I'm just going through it in real time. That's, that's how this is happening for my brain right now. Uh, okay. Chris, another two more. T- so two t- talking points from you. Uh, a, I didn't realize that uh, the, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. Galenic. Uh, Galen or Galenic yeah, medicine. Right. Yeah. Is it Galenic Medicine? Yeah, Galenic Medicine. That's how I've said it. I don't know how uh, Joanna Carpenter said it. We'll have to find out. (laughs) Uh, uh, I I don't know. I didn't realize it was so prolific for so long. Uh, You know, it's it's something that we sort of, you know, hear fairy tales of and we, you know, uh, think of, you know, the medicine man putting, putting leeches on people to, you know, draw blood and affect the four humors uh, within, within this, the you know i guess the ecosystem that is the the human body um i didn't realize that it had it it you know predated the i guess our modern era of you know of time you know to you know 200 ce uh and and then lasted all the way through the 1800s is that is that approximately correct yeah, like it really started falling apart earlier than that, particularly when the circulatory system was confirmed. It showed that blood didn't work like Galen thought it was. So the four yeah. humors are supposed, I thought it was always theoretical fluids. It's the four fluids in the human body. But as far as I can tell, he, he meant that literally. Like, And you have to always balance these four fluids against each other and I knew about the blood thing. I think we all heard of, you know, leeches mm-hmm. and, and bleeding and whatnot, but didn't realize there was a lot of other fluids expelled. There was sweating and vomiting and enemas all the time to balance the other fluids and then inputs. And that's where we get the medicine of take the hot and dry herb for this and the, the moist right. and um, uh, cold herb for that. And that's sort of, we get a lot of herbal medicine from that, but um 
yeah, as, t- as time went on, that the the humors were still practiced. We see the language into, I want to say into at least the 1700s, but then sort of like the folk medicine of it continued on. Certainly the bleeding um, happened into, I want to say the late 1800s, people would go for their annual spring bleeding. This is even in yeah. American medicine. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it it seems really a lot of the stuff in the book seems like really late to still be doing that. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's really really mind boggling. Just to um, put it all in in the timeline and go fuck like man, we were like Drew said really barbaric until really recently, uh, and, which of course makes you think like God, how much of our shit is still, you know, even though we've learned how much is still like kind of carries over and is still relatively barbaric. Uh, what really was driven home for me um, in your book was sort of the, the tragic pursuit of youth and how much alcohol is tied to that through through time and how even just on a psychological level that still pertains to be very true just with modern drinking culture. Um, this this pursuit of of the, the the fountain of youth and how oftentimes it just ends up completely tragically for anybody who's pursuing it in this way. Yeah, I think it was interesting how um, we got to. Well, people were distilling blood, and blood was being distilled before wine was really, at least, quote unquote, successfully. In that, you distilled blood and you got preserved blood that was being used as medicine, and that is the same thing as basically vampires you know you you drink the life force of something and then that's supposed to extend the your life um and it was actually used as a wine preservative in one example distilled blood was going to help wine last longer without spoiling but then even in modern times we still have that there's some of the silicon valley folks who are really testing blood to see if that could the blood of the youth if it can make Mm -hmm. you know billionaires last longer and uh and most things used in cocktails have origins and preservatives as well. And so when alcohol was first distilled, they're like, oh, that's going to help you live a long time. And the examples of that often were that you could preserve meat in it and it would last a long time without spoiling. And then when they were trying to figure out which was the healthiest spirit, and this is also something that people are still talking about today, you compare you put some meat and rum and some meat and brandy and which preserves it the best. Okay. That one's going to be the healthier one for you. And all of these cocktail ingredients from syrups and oleosaccharums and uh, roses, lime juice, which we learn in the history of, of scurvy was came directly out of that. These are all things for preserving food, but preserving medicine even before that and preserving human life. It's, it's all, it's all a spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> So one of one of the other takeaways that I have is, and I've long been a proponent of this just in my own research, is that you know brandy was such a bigger part of so many histories and whatnot. Uh, in particular, the the history of of just countries, navies, and pirates and things like that. And to kind of tie it into what you just said, Camp. One of my other thing was uh, the story of Vice Admiral Nelson, which is to me has always been told that during a battle vice admiral nelson is killed and instead of you know throwing him overboard and doing a burial at sea they're like we're going to bring him back to we're going to bring him back to england and so what they did was they put him into a barrel 
And unfortunately, the barrels got mixed up and then the sailors ended up drinking the rum that the that the uh, admiral was was stored in to preserve his body. Um, So, you know, obviously there's there's huge stretches to that. But now you have like Nelson's blood, cocktail drinks and things like and, you know, even some variations off that. But to learn that it wasn't even rum. And that it was actually brandy that he was stored in, and that this brandy was cycled on the trip home because obviously these were these were long travel times. And then for the doctor on the ship, that when he got back, he had to defend his choice of storing the admiral in brandy versus rum. I just was like blown away. I mean, obviously devastated to a certain degree that like, man, I didn't even have the spirit right in most of these stories that have been told to me. But, you know, then it was like cycled through and stuff like that. I just, you know, so there, there's, there is legitimacy to the story. It's just how we've been told mostly in this industry is completely wrong at this point, which I would have to assume that's probably the case for most things that we hear <laughs> these days. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, um, sort of urban legends and, and hearsay and like uh, that's based in some factual information, but it's not quite right. And uh, I think it's one of the interesting changes within the cocktails industry is just how many things we're kind of going through and disproving or finding that that may not have been really the way it was, you know, bathtub gin. It wasn't like people were distilling in a bathtub. It was maybe that's where you're adding your juniper oil to your neutral spirit or something like that. Um, and so many, so much of what we think we know is just sort of bar chatter. And now that we have the internet, we can disprove so much of it. Yeah. And I just think you did such a great job of that throughout this book. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's so many things here that, that I want to continue to talk about. So Chris, what, what's, uh, what's one of your other takeaways? Uh, you know, I'm really happy that you touched on the, the, uh, soda fountain. Soda fountains have always um, re- really fascinated me, and I think I think and it was really brought home for me when I read uh, Darcy O'Neill's um, "Fix the Pumps." But you really expanded on it quite a bit here, and and made it a lot more fun for me. And I think the 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 fun for it for me came in in this sort of sinister joy of of these the the concept of this sort of puritan space that like wholesome kids would hang out in you know and and how much of that concept is still really like pulls through in boomer culture today right and people were like oh we you know it used to be america used to be so nice used to be so innocent right but then you take you take this this real you know palpable concept of of the soda fountain and you just break it down and being like well not really there was a lot of booze that was involved here and really uh you know everybody would go down to the soda fountain just to get their buzz on and uh you know it was it's always so funny to me to to think of like Drew said these these stories that we've been told over years and how real history when you actually start looking at it and learning about it is so much more complex and so much more fun than this you know 
magnified scope that we have when we're when we're standing at 10,000 10,000 feet when we really get down and dirty and we start looking at at how these operations really worked they're a lot more fun and a lot more silly and a lot more scandalous than than history oftentimes shines that light on yeah i i love i love the the, the secret dirty history of, of everything. And uh, yeah, you would go get your, um, your opium laced medicine at, at the place that we associate with happy days and milkshakes and uh-huh. sock hop and everything like, well, that's the, the later incarnation of what was a very messy countertop. Um, not really alternative to the bar, but you know, that's when a bar was like a saloon stand at the saloon and you gamble at the saloon and and that and you could see the that the soda fountain would be a little bit more sophisticated and family friendly than that um and women were allowed of course and that was a big difference before prohibition but yeah when you the further back you go like the worse it gets when it comes to the soda fountain and a lot of other stuff and also when it came to uh prohibition and we always hear about mobsters and guns and Al Capone and that stuff. And I find that personally really uninteresting and just over overblown. We've, we've seen too much about it, but I love the, the science and the chemistry of that era of trying to renature, denatured alcohol and grandma's in the kitchen, redistilling <laughs> sort of uh, uh, rubbing alcohol to then sell, have the mob sell out on the street. And, the tracing of um, poisoned alcohol, I, I think, is really fascinating from like a, I don't know, a, a history of chemistry perspective. Well, and, and you really cover, you know, so much of this. Like, and ever there's, I don't feel like there's too many stones that that aren't, un, you know, unturned in this book. Um, one I wanted to ask you about was Baiju. So Baiju has been a hot topic on this podcast for a while because we're always just talking about overall brand values, consumptions, and things like that. And, you know, you, you get into Baiju and you kind of talk about it and it's different, you know, incarnations and how and kind of what makes it what. But I was curious, you know, through your research and learning about Baiju, my question always when it comes to Baiju is like, how the fuck are they consuming this much of it? Like it just blows my mind that so much distillate can be consumed by essentially one group of people. Now, granted, it's one of the most populous places in the world, but is it just, is it kind of like what you talk about with American history where people just wake up like, well, I'm going to go get my morning buys you. I'm going to get my afternoon buys you. I'm going to get my late night buys you. Like what is the, I mean, did you come across that in your research on buys you of just how they're consuming it? Um, not so much. I, just the way it's consumed generally is, you know, with food at dinner and with you know business meetings. Like we think of the Japan salary man, uh, just like the you know a lot of tiny little shots, and there's often beer there as well. And again, the numbers are astounding to me as well. And I don't get the impression that people are just wandering around drunk all day uh, or anything <laughs> like that. And uh, I don't know if the numbers are just tied to the population. If we did the math and we're like, oh, okay, well, that's X amount per person per day. The thing about a lot of Bajo is it's very high in alcohol and that's uh, smaller quantities have more of a kick. And 
also whether the statistics are per um, per pure gallon of alcohol, which they're often written that way, that skews the numbers a lot because um, it's a lot less in quantity that you have to get up to that the number of pure alcohol rather than 40% ABV is how we measure things a lot in the US. But if you measure that in 100% ABV, things look a little bit different. So I guess I don't have a good answer. <laughs> oh, no, I'm I just I, I mean, I don't think I mean, again, I don't think anybody does. It's just as when I when I heard it, and I see I hear Joanna say by Joe, I'm like, Oh, my God, my God there's going to be some revelation I've always looked for. And it's just like, Nope, this spirit just continues to be as confusing and mysterious as ever. Yeah, I think the, the real answer is there's just not a there's not a whole lot of whiskey consumption. It's all it's all Bajo. And Bajo is generally the word for spirit. You know, it's white right. spirit. And right. uh, it's so it's it's if you ask if you added up all spirits together, then that's the equivalent of just saying Bajo. It's it's to us. Mm-hmm. That's looks like one thing out of many. But that's everything in, in China. Right. Yeah. No, totally. Uh, Chris, one more. What do you got? Do you have anything? No. (laughs) Uh, Tapped out. Okay. Well, I'm going to just give two more and then we're going to go into our news stories. So one is if you guys want to know the origin of the word cocktail, oh my God, it is ridiculous. Uh, Again, go buy the book so you can get a little pep in your step. Um, (laughs) Find out. Find out what it is. And since Camper knows, he's laughing because he knows the actual answer to this. Uh, And then the other thing, uh, everybody knows how long I've just railed against color being added to whiskey. One of the original, you know, shysters of this practice used to do chewed tobacco to darken the whiskey. So anybody who darkens your whiskey, that's the company that you're keeping is chewed tobacco as a coloring agent. Yeah, sure. It's E150 now and it doesn't do anything. But you know what? Those are still those are still your comrades there. Okay, that's what these people were doing. So I just want I just want to put that out there as you you know people who color and darken up their their distillates. That's that's the company you keep. Um, uh, but now I think it's time for our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources. Okay, so the first story that we want to cover is bourbon barrels are at an all-time high right now. There are 11.4 million bourbon barrels as of January in Kentucky rickhouses. Um, that would complete four straight years of 2 million uh, barrel, uh, bourbon barrels each each year. There is approximately $40 million being paid in taxes on these barrels each year. This is important because this is one of the few uh, uh, places that actually taxes things while they're in production. You don't see that in any other, in too many other countries or with really any type of uh, product. And um, this is also a form of this, the skyrocketing growth since 1999. Bourbon production is up uh, 475%. President of the Kentucky Distillers Association, Eric Gregory, said it could be even bigger if Kentucky did not tax the bourbon while it's sitting there and aging, which we all know is a huge part of um, of the bourbon process. So, Camper, starting with you, you know, you you read this article, you you know, you've done all this research on history of aging and stuff like that. Are can you think of any other uh, you know situations where 
taxing part of the production or just taxes in general have affected production of spirits throughout the world? Oh, gosh, I have a whole list on a spreadsheet somewhere about how taxes impact the final form that spirits take in the world. It's not usually this particular one, but the Bottled in Bond Act was a, a significant act about taxing spirits um, that you didn't have to pay tax on them if they were in a bonded warehouse, and then you paid when you sold the spirit at the end. So I didn't realize that in Kentucky, as opposed to other places, that there was ongoing annual tax. So it was interesting to me. Um, I don't care that corporations have to pay taxes and maybe that money could go towards the schooling system um, in Kentucky. That would be that would be great if it did. <laughs> well, we know it doesn't right now because they are the last in education, right? So that's a uh, way to go, Mitch. Um, uh, Chris, what, what were some of your takeaways when you read this article? Actually, I'm right in line with Camper. That was my exact thought too, was I was like, oh, you know, like I, I don't really feel so bad that they have to that they have to pay taxes. Uh, I didn't realize also that um, that Kentucky was paying that paying. Uh, sorry, Kentucky distilleries were, were paying them as they were sitting. I, I assumed uh, it was uh, uh, post bottling, which is why a lot of a lot of um, brands kept their kept their booze under 50 percent ABV. And uh, mm-hmm. and why we pay more once it crosses that threshold, um, which I believe is is a federal law. I didn't realize that Kentucky had had their own. I'm not I, I I'm not offended or or I don't really really feel bad for them that they have to pay uh, as it's as it's grown. I think that there's some barrier uh, to entry for new distilleries as they're coming up, knowing that that's, that's part of their taxing. Um, and, and maybe there could be some modernization in that, uh, you know, to, to allow smaller companies to start, start developing as well. But I, you know, I'm with camper. I'm not, I'm not so offended by, by companies paying, paying taxes. Yeah. I think if this was, yeah. uh, went to the right place. This was framed as a as a news story, but it was really an, an advocacy story from the Kentucky Distillers Association to to try to get uh, taxes reduced. I mean, it's one thing about that is I suppose it means that people are paying tax on the angel share, so they're paying tax on something that won't exist in another couple of years. Right. A certain percent yep. of depending on how the taxes are, perhaps they're paying tax on um, uh, stuff that's going to fizz off and lose that money forever if, if they don't bottle it young. That would be uh, an interesting aspect of it that would be kind of neat to learn about, you know, math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the, the other the other interesting thing is that, you know, they were talking about how, um, you know, there are 11 other states that have more distilleries than Kentucky, uh, which I thought was interesting because obviously Kentucky is so synonymous with production of, of spirits in, in the U.S. And one of the things, and, and I totally agree with you, uh, camera. I think this is a very much so an advocacy, you know, news story. Um, but it is good. It is good stuff to know. And you know, as this, as the things that Eric Gregory is trying to point out, it's like, it's like, hey, we just don't have people opening up distilleries here because they can't make money on it. So now they're going to California. They're going to all these different states, which also seeing the California tax rate at being at like three percent compared to the eleven. I just was like, I was like, finally, we're lower in taxes than somebody. Like that was that was a big win as a Californian. So. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how this moves forward. I mean, obviously there's no signs of, of slowing down, right. Um, 
we got four years in a row of 2 million new bourbon barrels being laid down each year. Uh, and you know, if you, you can complain all you want to, but it hasn't stopped you from producing more than you ever produced before. So, yeah. And, you know, and from the retail side, I mean, we're just, uh, you know, we're not seeing anything slow down, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the only thing that's getting swooped off the shelves faster, faster and faster every year. It's just uh, bourbon. And, you know, we keep talking about the bourbon bust, that bubble bust, but, not not seeing it happen anytime soon yeah i agree okay i think that's enough on bourbon barrels all right so our next story and i gotta tell you guys for our listeners at home like you know i do try to put thought process into these articles and things like that and to find out that the article that i picked actually had some quotes from camper that didn't make it into the article it was very validating for me. So, um, <laughs> so this was actually an article from the New York times. So again, keeping pretty good company here in terms of who I'm talking to about this stuff. This story is all about is natural wine better for you. And then it breaks it down. And we actually had a lot of uh, input from uh, some people local to Chris and I at UC Davis uh, about you know, is drinking natural wine and all the four different factors that go into it. So one of them was like fewer pesticides and in all reality, even brands that are using pesticides, they're so minimal, it really doesn't have an effect, which for me is a big one because I don't know about you guys, but how many times have you heard someone make that pitch as part of their wine? It's like, oh, there's no pesticides. Well, turns out that doesn't really matter. Um, Also less severe hangover, literally no proof of that. Uh, less sulfites. Again, sulfites are only going to affect are, is only going to really affect you if you have some sort of sulfite intolerance. Um, and then, then it was you know if you like, but if you like sustainable farming and stuff like natural wine can still be good if it tastes good, good for you. I do like in this, and I think it's a and it ties into Camper's book as well, where it's like, hey, things can change. So all these experts are like, this is how it is now, but things can change. This stuff is always evolving. Um, so with that said, Camper, what were what were some of your thoughts when they initially approached you? Because you were silenced by the New York Times, but you're not silenced here. <laughs> well, of course, like after like ever after every argument, after every interview, you think of the thing that you should have said that was like zing. And so I <laughs> I put it on Twitter instead, which is really what Twitter is for, is like the the post argument uh, argument, uh, which which was like you know, asking which is the healthiest alcohol is like asking which is the healthiest flavor of Doritos. Like you're already at Doritos, like the difference between the seasoning sauce on top of them isn't going to move the needle one way or another. It's the same with alcohol, whether it's, you know, tequila or whiskey or um, organic or not. That's not where you're going to save your health because there's alcohol underneath it all. Right. Right. um, and then when it comes to, as you're saying, the about the pesticides that don't make it into the final product, and what you're doing is you're trying to support better agriculture and a greener planet for everybody. That's great. I think the same thing when it comes to fining agent. You know, most or a lot of wine and vermouth and fortified wines are not actually vegetarian because they use fish bladders or egg whites in the clarification process. Those are not in the final product. So as a vegetarian, I might not be drinking those, but I would prefer that, you know, eggs didn't have to be sacrificed to make wine clear. Like it would be great if um, they were never involved in the first place. And I would support the 
using other um, fining agents instead. Very similar parallels to here in into the natural wine. The, the biodynamic stuff is a little bit like, oh, you have to bury a wolf's head on the third Sunday of July and stuff like that. That might be a little far for me, um, but you know, not using yeah. uh, pesticides, like, ah, that's I can support that. Yeah, so I, I do want to point out that there is, a, there is a difference that your most stringent natural wine people will, will talk about, and that is you know, not only is this a natural wine, but it's biodynamic. And Camper is not far off on his example of what people do. Um, typically, it's like, hey, we only harvest when there's a full moon and things like that. But I am not ruling out the wolf head based off conversations I've had with the biodynamic wine growers out there. So, well, I mean, um, you, I mean shoot, that's like almost right there with ice wine harvesting, right? I mean, it's, it, you know, you, you've got to harvest between... Well, you know, as as the temperature reaches a certain, a, you know, below a certain Celsius degree, and you literally have a guy standing out there in the middle of middle of the night with a with a thermometer, and then says, "Okay, we've reached it, and go." And so now you have everybody harvesting <laughs> harvesting grapes under a full moon because it's only that's when it's the, like the coldest. So it's really not that far off, and it literally happens. <laughs> Maybe not the wolf head, but. They could no, run around with wolf running. heads on, and that would just be more entertaining. Yeah, and I think it's actually a cow horn that has to get buried. Bury a <laughs> there is, and that's that's a real Go thing. Cornucopia. You, you bury a cow's horn. I don't. I don't know why. <laughs> there's a there's a tasting that I have coming up uh, in in a few days, and I'm going to be pouring a lot of Hungarian wine. And, and I know a little bit about it, but part of the problem is that there's actually just not a whole lot of in-depth research on it. So I really have to dig deep. Although now after hearing this, I might just say the most outlandish things at this tasting because there's really no repercussions just for making shit up. And, um, <laughs> you know, I might just I might just do that. I'll, I'll send you guys a I'll send you guys a message after and let you know what I got away with. But, you know, I might <laughs> be throwing out some bullhorn because one of the one of the. Uh, Wines is called Bull's Blood, so I have I have some I have some thoughts right now that I might have to throw out there. Um, Chris, as a retailer, I know that you do carry some natural wine. Um, do you feel like that's a category that's continuing to grow, or are people kind of being like, it's like, okay, yeah, just just give me this one, like I want it to taste good. No, I see it. Uh, I I a I'm not one of those. I'm not one of the retailers that thinks that. Um, Natural wine is synonymous with bad taste. Uh, I think that that's a that that is a little bit of misinformation that's being thrown onto the natural wine category uh, to help with you know, quote unquote uh, conventional wines. You know, Drew, you and I talk pretty often about how how you know in old world winemaking, you know, natural wine is just wine, right. Right. Yep. Uh, and while while the term has caught on here in the in the States, it's, uh, you know, elsewhere in the world, it's just it's just wine. Uh, yeah. And that being said, you know, you know, I had somebody ask me the other day, maybe it was even you, if I have any natty wine on on the wine menu at Bodega. And I, I had to sit back and think. And I, I think I actually do it's not something that that professes being natural wine i think it just is wine 
that happens to be made in the, the, the natural methodology. But I, I don't see it going anywhere. You know, I mean, it hasn't already for, you know, thousand plus years. Why should it go anywhere now? Yeah, I think I, I meant more so as like like a really key marketing term for people, um, because I mean there is a lot of obstacles. Like one of the places that we talk about in Sacramento is is Good News Wine. Good News is is become one of my favorite wine spots because although it is quote unquote a natural wine bar, like they don't talk about it being a natural wine bar. In fact, they almost go the complete opposite direction and just try to you know they they have their ethos and what they're buying and things like that, but. They also designed it after a diner because they want it to be a very welcoming, familiar place. And, you know, anything with wine and, and I, and I, you know, we hear about it all the time. It's like with, with people who are trying to get into wine, when we had Dev on a couple of weeks ago about destigmatizing wine and stuff, when you start throwing in these extra layers and like the natural wine seems like a new, like a new thing when, you know, again, it's not at all. It's just some, it's just like some marketing speak. So I guess that's maybe more so like what I'm, I, do you see people moving away from it towards it? I don't know. No, um, you know, and I, you know, and I, I'm interested and I wrestle sort of internally with this is like, do you, how, how much do you fight it? Right. Like, mm-hmm. do you, how, how much is, is the education getting in the way of, of enjoyment and how much do you just let people go? Okay. It makes you feel better. Sure. Fine. Cool. Drink it. You know what? Drink this one too. Cause this one's similar to that. It's fine. Go ahead. You know, and yeah. give it a couple years and you've been drinking that and then like maybe they'll have an epiphany. But like in the meantime, me going, well, actually, you know, this, this, this. They're like, wow, that guy really talks down to me. So I'm just going to go over here and drink this wine anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, you got to you got to balance how you, you know your education and how how you deliver things. So people people um, really, uh, for lack of a better term, digest that information. But, I, you know, I, I I'm I. I'm really fascinated and interested to see how how this trend evolves. For me, because for me, it, it's more about sustainable farming, which matters more to everyone and should matter more to everyone, right? And, yeah. and then falling in love with the winemaker uh, and not just the wine brand. Um, I, I yeah. think that that's where we see things going and i think if natural wine as a as a trend helps get us there then like great that's fine let's let's jump on that train and and just say yeah sure go and then and then we'll we'll deal with nuances later down the road when you know if we have to yeah so you you know you said something that i think is interesting and and it's it's, i'm gonna be getting away from the natural wine talk but i but i think this is relevant for you camper so you know you do have this unbelievable knowledge uh, when it comes to spirits and things like that because of the time that you've put in. And and one of the things that I find myself, you know, struggling more and more with as you, you know, as you do educate yourself more, like sometimes it's harder to have the surface level conversations or the 40,000 foot, you know, view of things because it's like, like, nope, sorry, I've been in the weeds for the last, you know, 15 years. Like I can't speak any other way. When, when you're taking all the stuff that that you do camper and you, and you are talking to a group that's not full of med students or, you know, things like that. I mean, what are some of the things that you keep in mind? Because I know for a lot of our listeners, we do have bartenders, we do have brand ambassadors and stuff where, you know, sometimes you do have to scale it back and you have to kind of gauge your audience. What are some of the things that you've done over the years where you're kind of like, okay, I can't get into the weeds on this, but I can do this. This, These are the things you want to make sure you hit when you're talking to someone about something that you are uber passionate about. Well, 
actually tomorrow I'm giving a guest lecture to students at Berkeley and I have to do this exact of thing. You are. And I'm terrified <laughs> of it because I'm so, you know, in the weeds, as we say. And um, it's really when it comes to the questions that get asked, like, is it like this? And you're like, okay, the answer is no, it's not exactly like that. It's like that with if, but that, whatever. And just be like, yeah, cl- yeah close enough. Like you gotta, you gotta allow for <laughs> close enough um, to, to get you, um, you know, 80% of the way there. <laughs> and uh, that's what I try to do is like not, not, not push back because then you're kind of always telling someone that they're wrong and that's not really what you mean. You just mean like, like you're, you're getting there. <laughs> like, you know, it's funny. I, I had a, a sort of a similar moment when I was taking uh, my uh, level one W set, right? Like it's such a, such a basic tip of the iceberg exam. When I was taking it, my, my biggest issue is I just know more than what the exam is quite asking me about. And so I, I constantly had to like go to the proctor and he's like, you're overthinking it. Like, what's the most basic thing, man? Like, what's, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. Bop, 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 bop. Like, what does this generally mean? Bop, 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 bop. Okay, done. But, I, you know, I had to sit there and read each question, and I was like, well, it could mean that. Well, it could mean this. Like, here's yeah, a, you start, 10 reasons you on either arguments. side of this. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. It's a trick question. Did, Is Jack Daniels bourbon? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> literally literally uh, something like that, right? You're like, well, fuck me. i like, all right, okay. Like, yes, but also no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, I think that's enough on natural wine and us being smarter than everybody else. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Yo. Uh. You know who's dope? Them over there. Okay, now time for my favorite part of the show, the dope follows. We are going to tell you cool Instagram accounts, Facebook groups, podcasts. Make sure you still listen to ours. Books like Doctors and Distillers, uh, movies, whatever. Things that we think that are dope that you need to check out. So, Camper, you're going to kick us off. Who is your dope follow this week? My dope follow is... Uh, the Instagram account living to the brim. It's also uh, the website and that's Tony Gonzalez, who is uh, an ice, an ice entrepreneur. <laughs> he, uh, he create he created this like industrial strength, um, big ice tray. That's like super thick silicone that fits into an igloo cooler. Uh, and uh, so that's ghost ice. And then he created this um, ice, uh, press that you press your ice against and it makes uh stripes or honeycomb shapes or whatever oh, and it went yeah. it went super viral yeah yeah you, you it was hard to miss um in the past couple of weeks if you're on bartender internet and uh that's also um one of his products and that's called the ice designer it's an, an ice plate and stuff like that and so uh his his personal i guess uh web or instagram account is living to the brim and then you can connect to the other ones from there, but it's great. I love ice Instagram. If you, if you follow the hashtags for directional freezing or clear ice and stuff like that, you get all the ice nerds like trying to out ice nerd each other. And, you know, I'm a fan of that. How, how does that, how does that, I, I have to ask you, cause uh, yeah, I think a lot of people, they've heard me preach about it uh, on this podcast, but how does that feel for you as the guy who like broke the, you know, like 
you broke the secret, man. Like you, you, you went in, you, you, you did the thing, you exposed it to the world uh, of how ice is made. Though you know to get get it super clear, you know you were the you were the Jerry yeah, Thomas. You have to who, specify like, like clear ice, like you're making cameras on invented ice right now. No, 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 no. no, so, no. You, know, so, so, so you, you exposed clear ice <laughs> to the world. You were you were the Jerry Thomas who who wrote the thing. You know that uh, uh, destroyed the secrets, tore down the wall. <laughs> and now you have a lot of people going out there, you know, explaining it as if they invented it themselves or discovered it themselves. Is it like, does it make you feel great that you were like, hey, look, all these people and now my knowledge is out there for the world? Or you're like, hang on, motherfucker, like, like, at least <laughs> let, let, let people know one time that I that I, I helped with this. Yeah, there's there's a, a bit of each like um, I'm. I really appreciative when people like, you know, from academics or from camp or English, we learned or whatever, just to say it one time sometime and then go from there. Like it's, uh, since I'm not profiting off of all the clear ice that people are making around the world and creating all these projects, uh, products. And, um, it, it is nice. And when people are in touch, like, um, Tony from living to the brim is and whatever. It was like, Hey man, like, thanks. I, I made this thing. Do you, do you want one? Um, and I'm like, thank you very much. Like I haven't been acknowledged by a lot of the, the products that exist because of me, but um, so that's cool. And, and, you know, I love that I shared the information and it, and it got out there and people are using it and it's, it's a whole fun thing. And I, I very much appreciate it when people just take the time to tag because it's a whole particularly TikTok thing. Like, as yeah. if you invented everything that's happening on. And a lot of these are like <laughs> skits you would do in Boy Scouts is what's happening on TikTok now. You're like, like this is all just like a scenario that you created. Um, and it's not like anything from the real world. So um, yeah, when it's a, a little nod is helpful, but it is the nature of the beast and uh, it, what a beast it is. It is a beast. It's, it's turned into quite, quite the beast. I love, I love how there's, you know, we're definitely going to have listeners that, you know, because I, I threw out the ice enthusiast at the very beginning of the episode, and we've done a really good job of avoiding ice for particular reasons that Camper will reveal in about a year or so. But, um, you know, I love the fact that we were able to keep ice chat to a minimum until now. It's like, like no, you guys, seriously, like this dude is fucking Mr. Ice. He is Mr. Freeze. Like, you know, Mr. Freeze. so. <laughs> He's <laughs> the cold you know, meister. Yeah, he watches he watches Batman and Robin, and he's just like he loves the ice puns the whole time. It's just like him and Arnold. There, there it goes. Um, yep. Chris, who's your don't follow? Uh, well, if you've uh, been following our Instagram, you might have noticed a little bit of a change, and that's uh, that's because we've handed the reins over to uh, to an old coworker of mine and someone who is really uh, dove divin, t- someone who has. Who has dove an interest dove, in social media? He's an got an interest, interest in, in social media. <laughs> uh, Not we Marquez, don't. Not we Al Marquez, aka uh, Irritable Al Syndrome, uh, and uh, uh, on Instagram he is at Al underscore Marquez M A R Q U E Z eighty two, and he's been he's been having fun with our uh, Instagram account. And I've been having fun with him having fun with our account. And so that's great. So definitely want to give him a shout out, uh, go, go follow him and all of the hilarity and bar content that shows up on his account. Uh, and then also my favorite wine, uh, wine rag dropped, uh, dropped a new, 
um, edition about a month ago, and I finally got got my copy, uh, and um, that is Blood of Gods. And uh, the the newest edition is is really fantastic. It's a it's great, and the and I got it just in time because the uh, the next edition is about to drop again here in another month. Uh, so you guys should go out there, grab a, grab your blood of gods, uh, magazine, wherever you could find it. It's, it's just, it's just great, man. It just takes wine, makes it really approachable. A lot of fun draws the, you know, draws the parallel between wine and music and, and just crushes. It's great. Uh, yeah. Second, the blood of gods. It's, it's super fun. Um, all right. So my, my don't follow is I finally gave in. And started watching the Race to Survive Formula One show on Netflix and uh, just binged the hell out of it. I had zero interest in Formula One two weeks ago. And um, this past weekend, I got up at 5 a.m. to watch qualifying and then the race the next day. It is <laughs> fucking unreal. It's in, it is insane what goes into this sport. I mean, if you just want to experience gratuitous wealth, it's the show for you. If you want to see underdogs, it's the show for you. If you want to see just dominance for people who have all the money, it's the show for you. Um, it is. It's really fun. So it's on Netflix. They got four seasons. Other ones coming out. But then again, watching something that doesn't have kind of like a storyline to it, and watching the races this past weekend, they raced in Singapore, and it was incredibly exciting. And it was short, which is great for sporting events, as far as I'm concerned, because I know now. One of the things that I really struggle with when it comes to sports is like, it's like, listen, I don't have three or four hours just to sit down and watch other people accomplish something, right? And in Formula One, you know, money is time and they're just kind of like, boom, we're in and out. You do like 50 laps. Oh, we can't get 50 laps in. Here's a time limit. I'm like, I was losing my mind. I was like, they're about to like just call time on this event because they're like, we got to get the fuck out of here. We got a flight. We got to catch. We got to get out of here. So, um, so check it out. It is, like I said, it's really, really entertaining. Uh, the Netflix show does, did a great job. And it's funny because now I've read up on kind of like what they did. And now you have like every major sport in the world is trying to figure out like a Netflix-like model because they're kind of like, oh my God, you took this, you know, popular but somewhat obscure sport that was very specialized and you're infused it with a brand new audience. So for example, they did a race in Austin, Texas last year. And they had like 500,000 more people come to it than they ever had before. So, I mean, it's just like some real crazy influence on it. But uh, you know what? Those are those are some pretty dope follows. Nice. Well, there's a bartending competition coming up uh, on Netflix. And we'll see if yeah. that, uh, if they can do it with bartending. Because no one has been able to make a bartending competition interesting before. <laughs> you know, it's, it, on, it's, on, it's, on, if John Taffer can't make bartending industry, then nobody can. So, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's funny. Drew and I have talked uh, uh, offline uh, about why well, I had wanted to cover it because it's so interesting that no one's been able to do this, even though you have the trend of food and the two are so parallel, but, but no one's it always comes across so hatchet jo job like nobody's can't figure it out they don't know how to shoot it they don't know how to make it interesting they don't know how to make it sexy which is so funny because as an industry it's already so interesting and so sexy so it's like you're being handed this on a golden platter and people just fuck it up left and right all right <laughs> sorry 
music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by Leon and Chase Moore and produced semi-awkwardly by us two guys. Before we go uh, kill these coffee pots that we've been drinking today, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, tell your friends, tell your aunties, tell your wives, and uh, leave us a five-star review. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Check out what Al is doing at the Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is D Garrison Six. Chris is Chris Sinflair. Uh, Camper, where can they find you on the social medias? I'm Alcademics at Twitter, Instagram, I think TikTok too, and Alcademics.com. I like it. I like it. If you would like for us to cover a story or if you're working with a brand that would like to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and, you know, you can purchase bottles at thegoodbottleshop.com. Camper, where can they find your book? Where do you want people buying doctors and distillers from? Uh, it doesn't matter to me as long as you buy it. It's available by audiobook <laughs> on uh, Kindle and uh, paperback on all the major book shopping websites. Uh, or you can support your local bookstore. If they don't have it in stock, they're always happy to order any book that you want. I'll drop, a, I'll drop a link into our into our show notes uh, for, a, for a small local independent place that might, that might be carrying it. Yeah, and it, it is a beautiful book, everybody. Like I said, I got the audio version and then... And then I was like, well, I need to have the hard copy as well. There's some there's some really cool images of like old ads and um, old spirits in there, which, you know, Cameron did a good job of delivering that. Uh, and then plus all the drinks, too, where you can figure out how to convert ounces to milliliters. So, you know, that's the real reason to do it. But, hey, you guys, until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.